welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to finish the series that we have started, just a brief series, uh, as far as Don Barry's series go at least, uh, on hot potatoes from 1 Corinthians. Um, So far in the series, we have considered things like uh, the need for the people of God to be living out of the right story. We started by Paul's frustration, really, that the Corinthians were still living out of an old story, that they hadn't really recognized that they'd been grafted into a completely new story and they weren't living out of the right story. Uh, The second message we talked about, um, the the corporate responsibility and accountability that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians, and that's a hot potato in our society where, um, you know, radical individualism is pretty much the moral wallpaper of our time. Then um, the third one I spoke about um, sex, the fourth one I spoke about the role of woman, And the fifth hot potato I want to try and juggle this morning is the issue of divorce and the people of God, because Paul does talk about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to read from the message translation that portion of Scripture. It's verses 10 to 17. It goes like this. If you are married, stay married. This is the master's command, not mine. If a wife should leave her husband, she must either remain single or else come back and make things right with him. And a husband has no right to get rid of his wife. For the rest of you who are, in a mixed, who are in mixed marriages, Christian married to non-Christian, we have no explicit command from the master, so this is what you must do. You are a man, if you are a man with a wife who is not a believer but still wants to live with you, hold on to her. If you're a woman with a husband who is not a believer but he wants to live with you, hold on to him. The unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is likewise touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be left out. As it is, they are also included in the spiritual purposes of God. On the other hand, if the unbelieving spouse walks out, you've got to let him or her go. You don't have to hold on desperately. God has called us to make the best of it as peacefully as we can. You never know, wife, the way you handle this might bring your husband not only back to you, but to God. You never know, husband, the way you handle this may bring your wife not only back to you, but to God. And don't be wishing you were someplace else or with someone else. Where you are right now is God's place for you. Live and obey and love and believe right there. God, not your marital status, defines your life. I love the message translation, and I'm sure that last paragraph may be a word to somebody just struggling with where you feel you are right now. I want to use this passage in 1 Corinthians as a leaping, a kind of a leaping off point, and we're going to range around a little this morning, both in terms of history and in the Scriptures. At the time that Paul is writing, the Greco-Roman world um, was very much like the world that you and I live in in many respects. Divorce was very common and very easy. Their law was almost equivalent of our no-faults divorce uh, procedure. To enact divorce at this time, the owner of the marital dwelling could simply tell their spouse to leave, or the spouse could simply leave the house, and that was divorce. Separation in that time didn't lead divorce. It was divorce. There was no need to name any grounds, no need to go to court. It could be done and was often done on a whim. 
and it was possible to put out or walk out on an innocent and loving partner without any fear of comeback. Divorce still can be done like that in many cultures today. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but in Islam, a man can divorce his wife by simply saying to her three times, I divorce you. He doesn't have to specify or prove any wrongdoing on her part. In, uh, in 2001, a man in Dubai divorced his wife by text. She apparently was late home and had failed to cook his dinner, and so he sent the divorce text to her. She was shocked and took issue uh, with, with the text and took it to the Muslim court where the man's decision to divorce her in this manner was upheld and the divorce was enacted. I think most of us are very aware that divorce has swept the Western world over the last seven or eight decades like a tsunami. You know, when I was growing up in the 1950s and 60s as a child, divorce was rare and considered tragic. But with the introduction of no-fault divorce, it's become commonplace. The statistics are above one in three and are heading to one in two in terms of marriages that end this way. Now, when, when I came to consider this hot potato, I'm incredibly aware that I'm stepping into a world of controversy and pain. Many of you who are listening to me have been touched directly by divorce. It may have been you personally. It could have been your parents. It may have been a sibling or perhaps one of your children. There are very few of us in this room who haven't been touched by its painful reality. And I don't want to be insensitive to the situation that you have faced. However, as followers of Jesus, we've got to grapple with this issue and with what the Scriptures say about it. Now, at a point in a talk like this, I can almost hear somebody saying, yeah, I've heard this kind of talk before and been burnt by it every time I've heard it. Excuse me, but I'm checking out. I'll do Facebook while you talk to the rest of the people and make them feel even more stink than they already do. Can I just say, before you do open your device, um, what I'm going to say might not be the talk that you've heard before. So perhaps if you just put Facebook on hold for a moment. In my early years of ministry, um, I was exposed to a teaching that was very widespread in the denomination of which I was part that was incredibly stringent on divorce and remarriage. Both theologically and pastorally, it was not allowed under any circumstances. We understood that marriage was an indissoluble mystery between a, a, a mysterious union between a man and a woman, and not only should it not be broken, in fact, it could not be broken and that a person's first marriage was seen as the only legitimate marriage that person could have in the eyes of God. So divorce was always wrong, and ipso facto, remarriage was always wrong. If separation did occur, there were two possible options. Number one, reconciliation and restoration of the marriage, or a life of singleness. As I say, remarriage was not permissible, and anybody who did remarry were considered to be living in adultery. Divorced people were disallowed in many churches and for long periods of history, any place of ministry. It wasn't that long ago that divorcees were not allowed to sing in the choir, were not allowed to hold any office in the church. They were virtually second-class citizens. They could be forgiven, but they were seen somewhat as tainted, damaged goods. Ironically, they could murder their partner and be ultimately forgiven and restored. Just don't divorce them. Not that I'm trying to sow any seeds here, of course, this morning. 
Malachi chapter 2 verse 1 was a scripture that became something of a blunt instrument to pummel divorcees. And I'm sure you've all heard it. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. I think that passage often tended to be read in a manner that seemed to convey the idea that God also hated divorcees. Pastorally and practically, I watch that teaching applies in ways, in ways that I look back on with a degree of shame and have to admit that um, it, it, appears, it appeared then and remains incredibly heartless and cruel to people who had been victimized by divorce. I can think of one particular young lady. She married a youth leader in a church nearby us and only months after uh, the marriage, he inexplicably just took off with another woman. And she was left as a, a, a young 20-year-old, I think she was probably about 22, 23, facing a long life of singleness. Um, she was not allowed, of course. She'd been told that she couldn't get remarried. Um, even though her husband had left her and gone off and remarried, she was uh, married in the eyes of God. No, I remember her telling me, you know, that somebody had come up to her and said, gee, I hope you like prayer because you're obviously going to spend a lot of time in prayer being a single person without children in the years that lie ahead. And you just, I look back on those, those things and just shake, shake my head at the insensitivity in terms of her pain and then just thinking practically and pastorally about that situation. But you see, there were passages in the New Testament that seemed to justify such a stance with regard to her and so many others. There are passages that seem to confirm this strict, stringent stance on divorce. For example, in Matthew chapter 19, verses three through nine, it says, one day the Pharisees were badgering Jesus. Is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? He answered, haven't you read your Bible that the Creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? And because of this, a man leaves father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh, no longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. They shot back in rebuttal. If that's so, why did Moses give instructions for divorce papers and divorce procedures? Jesus said, Moses provided for divorce as a concession to your hard-heartedness, but it is not part of God's original plan. I'm holding you to the original plan and holding you liable for adultery if you divorce your faithful wife and then marry someone, someone else. I make exception in cases where the spouse has committed adultery. So that seemed pretty much to be case closed in terms of the uh, view of divorce that I'd been taught. In the light of what seemed to be, at that time for me at least, plain teaching, I had two options. Number one, I could decide that Jesus and then later on Paul were much too harsh and unrealistic, and I could try and find some other option that I could live with. But I knew that pathway wasn't really open to me since it would put me in authority over the Word of God rather than me under the Word's authority. The second thing I could do, of course, is submit to the text and try and live with something that I saw as pastorally incredibly destructive to people, which is really not a whole lot of a choice. So for many years, I really struggled with this issue and there was, for me, a certain degree of murkiness surrounding it. Probably 15 years ago, a decade ago, I returned to the subject and tried to clear my own thinking up on the matter. A man by the name of David Instone Brewer was an incredible help to me. Uh, Brewer, Instone Brewer is a senior research fellow at uh, Tyndale House in Cambridge and has written a lot on this subject 
And in what follows, I'm going to draw quite heavily from him. Um, I have to say, being honest, that not everybody necessarily agrees with his stance, and certainly not everyone will agree with my take on the subject either. That, that of course, is your prerogative, but this is where I stand presently. <laughs> Brackets. Okay. Firstly, it's a bit like the second coming, isn't it? Last week I believed this, this week I'm tending. No, anyway. I'm fairly settled with this, just in case you're worried. Uh, my, my study firstly made me more steadfast in my belief that marriage is God's ideal and idea and that he's deeply committed to it. And in spite of and contrary to what our culture is presently peddling, in the purposes of God, marriage is intended to be one man, one woman in a lifelong union. And ultimately, God's original purpose did not include divorce. And I think he really does hate divorce, but not for the reason that you might imagine. When I read Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, I don't read God saying, I hate divorce, don't do it. As you might say to one of your children about some action that they're doing, don't do that, I don't like it. Rather, what I hear God saying here is, I hate it when that happens. And that's, there's a significant difference in those two things. The, the significant difference comes from the fact that God hates divorce because he knows firsthand the pain that it causes. I don't know if you know this, but God is himself a divorcee. I don't know whether that's ever occurred to you. But in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, in the New International Version, it says, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce, and I sent her away because of all her adulteries. God knows firsthand the pain of divorce. And when he says, I hate divorce, he's not saying, don't do that, I hate it. He's saying, I hate it when that happens. I know how that ruins people's lives. I know how that causes so much difficulty. When I say that God never intended divorce to occur, I would also want to say God never intended sin to happen. He understands, however, that both do and will, and he has opened up the possibility and provision for restoration and healing. I don't know whether this will surprise you, but the reality is the Mosaic law allowed for the possibility of both divorce and remarriage in the case of marital failure. Secondly, as I studied this, I found that there were four recognized grounds for divorce in the Old Testament. The first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, when it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends it out from his house. The original language has the idea of some sexual unfaithfulness. That's the first condition, and it is what Jesus said isn't it, in Matthew chapter 19, except for the case of marital unfaithfulness. So in the economy of God, a victim of sexual unfaithfulness is permitted to divorce their spouse. Some rabbis, by the way, assumed that this was a command and required mandatory divorce in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. It wasn't at all commanded, and in many cases, forgiveness and restoration actually might occur even when sexual unfaithfulness has been present. However, this passage acknowledges the reality that in the face of sexual unfaithfulness, sometimes trust has been so eroded and so compromised that the continuation of the marriage actually is not a possibility. So sexual unfaithfulness. 
The other three conditions actually are found in Exodus chapter 21, verses 10 and 11. It's an unusual passage, but it says this. If he marries another wife, then he must not diminish the first one's food, her clothing, or her marital rights. If he does not provide these three things for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. She can be divorced. So this passage concerns a slave girl who has married a master, and it outlines her rights if perchance her master marries another woman. Now, polygamy, as undesirable as it was in terms of God's original purpose for marriage, was allowed at times with certain conditions in the Old Testament. And this passage says, if a man takes a second wife, then obviously there might be a temptation to favour the new wife over the old one. Now, what the law does is ensures and enshrines that he cannot withhold from his wife three essentials of marriage, and they are food, clothing, and conjugal rights, marital relations. If they are consistently withheld, then she has the right to initiate divorce proceedings. Now, at first glance, you might be tempted to dismiss a passage like this. It seems incredibly irrelevant to the 21st century, since obviously we don't practice polygamy, so we don't have a second wife to favor over the first. And secondly, we don't marry slaves, although some might cynically suggest that some marriages might have created some. However, before you dismiss this passage as irrelevant, you need to know it's case law, not statute law. And case law, you ignore the specific details and you look at the principles that might apply to all marriages that actually involve neglect. And the rabbis of the time argued, and I think correctly, that if a slave wife had the right to divorce her husband if he neglected these three basic essentials of marriage, then the free wife would most certainly have had the same rights. And they went on to argue that if a wife had these rights, then a husband was also entitled to the same considerations and could divorce his wife if she was consistently neglectful in regard these three things. So as you look at the Old Testament, there are four grounds for divorce. Number one, sexual unfaithfulness. Number two, a failure to provide food or a failure to provide clothing. Number three, a neglect of conjugal affection and love, those four things. Actually, if you then go on to look at the basis of a Jewish marriage, those four things were promised in exchanges of vows at a Jewish wedding. A Jewish man would promise to provide food and clothing. The woman promised to cook the food and sew the cloth, and they both agreed to share conjugal love and be faithful to one another. Those four things amount to mutual support, physically, emotionally, affectionately, and with sexual faithfulness. It's really interesting, but even modern day weddings, if the vows are at least traditional, you'll notice that they are shaped by and that they are echoes of Deuteronomy 24 and Exodus 21. Those same four essentials of marriage are spoken to. We use slightly different language. We might use nourish and keep, which essentially is feed and keep warm. We might say love, honour and keep. But the ideas are exactly the same. The ideas are of mutual support, physically, 
emotionally, that there is physical affection and sexual faithfulness. Those are the promises of the traditional marriage vows. We promise exclusivity. We make a vow of conjugal love when we say in the words of the old, uh, of the old marriage vows, with my body I thee worship. Maybe today we something, say something like, all that I am and all that I have I give to you. But those are the promises. Now, under Mosaic law, if those vows were consistently flouted with a dimension of hard-heartedness, there, there were grounds for divorce. And in such a case, a marriage was considered to be ended by the person who had failed to keep the vows and not by the person who finally acted to end what was already dead. Now, I make an emphasis of that point because in my growing up years, we were told as believers, you never, never initiate divorce. You are not the one responsible for the divorce. Problem, if the spouse goes off and lives the high life and never tries to initiate the divorce, this one is caught in a dead marriage and tied around with bonds that apparently they are not allowed to break. The difference for me is that person doesn't break the marriage vows. This person has broken the marriage vows. All this person does is recognize that they are broken and announce to the world that this is actually dead. He doesn't, or she doesn't kill it. She just, or he simply acknowledges the time of death. There's a key element in there that I think would be a point of release to a lot of people who've carried a lot of guilt for initiating a divorce that actually somebody else caused. The victim of the divorce, by the way, in the Old Testament, left with a certificate that enabled them to be remarried. A person could not divorce their spouse for any other reason. They could not simply say they were tired of them or that they didn't love them anymore or that they'd found somebody else who was their true soulmate. The vows had to have been broken in a hard-hearted manner in some demonstrable way. So under the Mosaic law, divorce was considered undesirable but sometimes tragically necessary. And in the Old Testament, you do not have a picture of a God who is inflexible, uncaring and legalistic and that, who, that demands no matter what emotional or physical neglect and abuse a person might be sustaining, they have to stay within that relationship and they must endure it until either the person is sexually unfaithful or they die. God gave clear, firm laws that sought to limit the damage that might be caused by a relationship of neglect and abuse. And while divorce may not necessarily take away the hurt of such a situation, it doesn't perpetuate it either. So then we come to the New Testament. And to me, it seems a little ironic that according to many scholars, Jesus and then later Paul are interpreted as having a much stricter, stringent view of divorce with the resultant harsher implications for the victims of marital abuse. My immediate thought was so much for grace over law. Now, I'm willing to concede that as you read the New Testament, at first glance, it does seem that in the passage we read in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus seems to be overturning the Old Testament provisions for ending a consistently abusive relationship in which one spouse regularly refuses to honor their marriage vows of feed, clothe, love, protect. But I wanna ask the question, does it seem right 
that Jesus would repudiate the Old Testament on this issue? Did he really intend to change the Mosaic law and make it much more difficult? Let's look at Matthew 19 one more time. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'm picking the beginning and the end of it. One day the Pharisees were badgering him. Is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? He then at the end says, I'm holding you to the original plan and holding you liable for adultery if you divorce your faithful wife and then marry someone else. I make an exception in the case where the spouse has committed adultery. Now, what I found out, there's, there's some crucial information that backgrounds this debate that we really should know about. And if we don't know about it, we're liable to come to conclusions that actually aren't intended in the text. All of you have heard the whole, you know, the statement, a text without context is a pretext. And there's a context to this passage that's incredibly important. A few decades before Jesus, there were two very, very prominent rabbis who had very different interpretations on the issues of divorce and remarriage. They were Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Hillel was what we would call a liberal in his views. Shammai was what we would refer to as a conservative. Rabbi Hillel had studied Deuteronomy 24 and he noticed an unusual phrase. And in, the, in this verse, there's a Hebrew phrase, which our English translation translates the indecency of a matter or the nakedness of a matter or a matter of sexual immorality. And to Rabbi Hillel, the word matter seemed superfluous. He thought, What's, why, would you, why would you have a matter of sexual immorality? Why wouldn't you just say sexual immorality? And as he thought about it, he thought that the strangeness of the language indicated a hidden meaning in the text. And he concluded that Moses was actually outlining two issues for divorce in this passage, not just one. There was a cause, a matter, and there was sexual unfaithfulness. Not a matter of sexual unfaithfulness, but two things, a matter, a cause, and sexual unfaithfulness. Now, this was a very new development in Judaism and one that became very popular very quickly, given fallen nature being what it is. Ultimately, the cause provision, any cause, any matter, became almost exclusively the way people divorced their spouse in that time. Men were literally able to divorce their wives for any matter. Women couldn't do it because Deuteronomy started off and said, if any man, all right? So I'm sorry, ladies, you don't have that provision. Only the men do. But there can be any cause. And history tells us there were some interesting ones. She burnt the dinner. She argued in a loud voice. She let her hair down inappropriately. These became matters for divorce, any matter. No proof was required, no appearance in court needed. All that was to be done was a divorce certificate written out and the woman could be sent away for any matter. You can see how popular this became uh, by Jesus' time when, when you see that Joseph, Mary's husband, was intending to put Mary away using the Hillite any cause divorce. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, had in mind to divorce her privately, just send her away with a Hillite certificate, any cause. Now, I have to say, Joseph did that for absolutely honorable reasons. He didn't want to shame Mary, but it was the Hillel, any cause divorce procedure that he was using. 
Now, Rabbi Shammai disagreed with Hillel's interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, and he argued that any matter divorce was based on a faulty reading. The Hebrew phrase, in fact, did not create a ground for divorce at all, and the passage should simply be read as sexual immorality. Now, what neither of these two men did was reject the other issues mentioned in Exodus 21, food, clothing, conjugal rights. Those, those were assumed and accepted throughout society. Shammai and his disciples that followed him, what they wanted to do was stop any matter divorce, stop any cause divorce, and restrict the dissolution of marriage to the four valid, previously well-accepted grounds of sexual unfaithfulness in Deuteronomy 24 and, and abuse and neglect as it occurs in Exodus 21. And the debate was heated and ongoing. And in Matthew chapter 19, Pharisees come to Jesus and their question pertains to this debate. It starts, is it legal for a man to divorce his wife for any cause, for any matter? They are referring to this heated, ongoing debate. This is not a question about whether Jesus thought divorce was lawful or not. It wasn't, is divorce lawful? It was for any matter. To say, is divorce lawful, is an illogical question. Divorce was lawful under the Mosaic law, as we have seen. In, in that effect, the question would be, is the law lawful? which is a bit of a dumb question, you have to say. They are asking, is it lawful in terms of any matter, this debate? These men, including Jesus, they know the Mosaic law by heart. They know divorce is lawful under these four accepted conditions. Their question was, is any cause, any matter divorce lawful? Uh, whose side are you on in this debate? Now, someone might suggest, Don, Mark chapter 10, verse 2, it has that same story and it doesn't have the phrase for any course. They simply ask, is, lawful, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Doesn't that ruin that theory? Doesn't it ruin that idea? Well, I, let me answer your question. Number one, it still makes the question nonsensical. Is the law lawful? Is what they're asking. And I'll tell you, there's a simple reason for Mark's shortened version of Matthew chapter 19. Anyone reading or listening to the question in the first century would have supplied the missing words for any cause to complete the question in exactly the same way that we do in debates today. For example, should a 16-year, should it be lawful for a 16-year-old to drink? Okay. Well, at face value, I've got to say, it's a rather stupid question. Of course they should drink. Without drinking, they dehydrate and die. But you see, we don't think like that because we add something else to the question. It wasn't in the question, but we mentally supply it, and the word is alcohol. Should 16-year-olds be allowed to drink alcohol? It doesn't have to be added. It doesn't need to be. We put it in there. Same, same with the question, should people smoke? We don't verbally add cigarettes, we don't have to. In Christian circles, we talk of the second coming. We don't have to add of Jesus Christ, it's assumed. 
We don't have to add those things because we mentally add them. Listen, the debate about any matter divorce was so widespread it could be abbreviated in that matter, in that manner. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and people add for any cause? And that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus, by the way, comes down on the conservative Rabbi Shammai's side in the debate and he rejects out of hand any matter divorce. Now, he was not saying, as some suggest, that the only grounds for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness. He's saying in that passage in Deuteronomy 24, there are not two grounds for divorce, there are one. And he goes on to say, and if you divorce for any matter and remarry, you have committed adultery. That marriage is invalid. Jesus wasn't commenting on, nor was he rejecting Exodus 21 and the grounds for divorce it outlines. Those three grounds, neglect, physical, emotional, um, conjugal rights, uh, were accepted by all in this debate, including the conservative Shamites, the liberal Hillites, and, and Jesus himself. It's part of the Mosaic law, universally accepted and agreed on. Listen, if Jesus didn't accept Exodus 21, he has the perfect opportunity to say so right here. And he could have said, listen guys, while we're on this subject, the other grounds for divorce that you all accept, they are invalid as well. And he doesn't. Now, I'm, I'm very aware that you need to be careful when arguing from silence, but it really may be defensible on this occasion since it would be so surprising that if he rejected those grounds for divorce that he doesn't mention it at this point in time. Jesus says nothing about the universally accepted beliefs, and most scholars assume that he indicates, that indicates that he accepts it like everybody else in the debate. If, if you're going to take the view that Jesus was saying that there is only ever one grounds for divorce and that's sexual unfaithfulness, then you have to face some significant problems, both pastorally, practically, and theologically. Pastorally and practically, because you're reduced to having to say some of the incredible, hurtful, and destructive things that I referred to earlier on, to innocent victims in abusive relationships where you say, listen, I know your spouse is beating you and your children within an inch of your lives, but I'm sorry, you can't leave until he either commits adultery or he dies, assuming it's he and not the other way around. I know your spouse is gambling and drinking away all of the family money and that as a result, you aren't able to feed and clothe the children, but I'm sorry, unless they commit adultery or unless they die, you're stuck. You try saying that. Tell you it sticks in the throat. Theologically, it's difficult because Paul provides us with a major headache. Because in 1 Corinthians 7:15, he clearly amends Jesus' words and he adds abandonment and desertion as a reason, a valid reason for divorce. What impudence! What absolute presumption! How do you expect to add to Jesus' words and to be taken seriously? Oh, by the way, Jesus forgot to tell you. If they leave you, if they desert you, you have valid grounds for divorce and you can remarry. You are free in such a situation. Can I suggest to you that both Jesus and Paul understood, assumed, and accepted the Mosaic law on the grounds of divorce? They didn't, they, they didn't, they, they understood, and Jesus said, it's a result of hard-heartedness. It's the result of brokenness and the fall, but that stuff happens. He's not encouraging a divorce. All along, he's saying it's tragic. It's not the purposes of God. 
but it happens in a fallen world. Jesus and Paul weren't strict and harsher than the law, and Jesus and Paul weren't at odds with one another. In Matthew 19 and Mark 10, Jesus is simply speaking to the question that he's been asked about the ongoing debate between the disciples of Hillel and Shammai. Whose side are you on? Are you in favor of any matter divorce? He said, no, I am not in favor of that. And when you do that and go and remarry, you are living in an adulterous relationship because that is an invalid means of breaking in, in the relationship. When you go back in one, to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will notice, by the way, that Paul's language and thought is shaped by and is an echo of Exodus 21. The food, the clothing, the conjugal rights. And he starts speaking to them about conjugal love. Verses three to six, the marriage bed must be a place of mutuality, he says. The husband seeking to satisfy the wife, the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. This is the message translation, by the way, if you haven't guessed. Abstaining from sex is permissible for a period of time if you both agree to it, and if it's for the purposes of prayer and fasting, but only for such times. Then come back together again. Satan has an ingenious way of tempting us when we least expect it. I'm not, understand, commanding these periods of abstinence, only providing my best counsel if you should choose them. He's talking about conjugal rights. Notice, by the way, though, he changes the language from rights to obligations. He doesn't say you can go into a relationship and you can demand these things. He's saying, Let, let's, let's each of us be a servant to the other. This isn't about demanding rights, but surrendering in service to the other. The idea of conjugal rights is retained, but it is reframed in a new spirit of servanthood. Further down in the passage, verses 33 through 35, he talks about the material um, obligations. He says, marriage involves you in the nuts and bolts of domestic life, food, clothing, and in wanting to please your spouse, leading to so many more demands on your attention, the time and energy that married people spend on caring for and nurturing each other. By the way, you read that and he's singing the praises of a single life given the present distress. But he's saying, this is what marriage is about. You can see how this is shaped by Exodus 21. Marriage involves material and emotional support and conjugal rights, uh, conjugal love and affection. And he's saying, if these are consistently, heartlessly ignored, if there is abuse, either physically, mentally, or can I say sexually, there remains a just cause for, for divorce. Now, this might be new to some of you, and you might be thinking, gee, Don's gone off on a tangent. I thought, he, I thought he loved the Scriptures. I do. I do love the Scriptures. And, uh, and, I, and I, having studied this and gone into it in as much depth as I'm able to do, this to me, both theologically and pastorally, makes sense. Let me try and draw to a close by saying, so, you know, what does all this stuff mean for the 21st century? Well, divorce still remains a hot potato, doesn't it? And it's a point of great controversy and pain, both in the church and outside it. Can I suggest a couple of bullet points? Number one, we should take our marriage vows very seriously since God does. And we should, by God's grace, be determined not to break them. We've made that promise. We should never accept easy divorce and walk away from those promises and commitments. 
However, we know we live in a fallen world where with even the best of intentions, sometimes things go tragically wrong. And when there is hard-hearted, consistent breaking of the vows that involve physical or emotional neglect and abuse or sexual unfaithfulness, there can be grounds for a divorce. Now, I'm incredibly aware that there might be someone who's listening to this and takes what I'm saying and twists it and suggests that their spouse is, in fact, abusive and neglectful and that that gives them just grounds for a divorce, when in actual fact, it's not the case at all. And you know what, um, as I'm thinking about it, I can hear somebody saying, well, my spouse isn't interested at all in the physical aspects of our marriage. Conjugal rights are a joke. I want a divorce, and it seems to me that you've just given me the grounds for one. Well, you know, I'd want to have a lot of conversations with both that person and their spouse before that conclusion was acted on and, and, um, and reached. You know, firstly, the principle of conjugal love should not narrowly be defined as sexual intercourse. Of course it includes that, but physical affection can be expressed in various ways and many times a hug might be completely more appropriate than physical intercourse. Secondly, we all know that there are seasons of life, times of sickness, frailty, childbearing, enforced absence where sexual intimacy is simply not on the agenda and none of those should constitute the breaking of the vow. None of those constitute breaking the vow of conjugal love. Thirdly, I'd want to say that providing sexual intimacy to a partner who shows no affection or sensitivity or care at any other times is a very big ask for some people and may well provide the reason for the breakdown of conjugal relationships. And to blame, to blame one without understanding that the cause may well lie with another is just too easy and it skirts the issue. If I happen to be talking about your marriage, then you, you should be talking. You should be talking to one another, and if that's not possible, somebody else and get the help. Don't take the easy road and just simply head for divorce. Remember your promises in good times and in bad times. You say, Don, what do you say to people who come to you and say, well, I just don't love them anymore? You don't want to know what I say to them, okay? It's not, it's not, no, I won't go there, okay? I just don't love them anymore, or we just don't love one another anymore. Does that constitute grounds for a divorce? You know, it's incredibly difficult to read the modern concept of being in love back into a text and a culture that had little appreciation of or even not much notion of romance as we do. Romance and love are not the same thing. When romance dims, love can remain. Romance comes and goes, love remains. Romance is a feeling, love is largely an action. To the question, is a diminution of love or romance a reason for divorce? The answer is, I'm sorry, no. The answer is, work on it. Actually, some people say to me, I just don't love them anymore. And I've said to them, do you realize what that says? That isn't a, a reflection on them. It talks to me about your laziness. Because love isn't something that resides in them, it resides in you. And when you are not doing it, that's your problem, not theirs. And some people in our culture have no idea of that. Now, I, I do know people with an agenda will twist the things that I say to make it say what they want it to say so that they can do what they want it to, to do. But uh, I, I would just say in Jesus' day they did that, in Paul's day they did that, in our day they'll do that too. And I'm not talking to people like that. I'm not even prepared to allow people like that with an obvious agenda to set the tone for our discussion. Um, I'm going to ask the music, musicians to come and rescue me, please. 
But as they do, let me say one other thing that I haven't talked about and, and I'm not going to in detail at all. Um, people ask, well, you know, if divorce takes place, can remarriage take place? And the answer is in the Old Testament, a person who was divorced legally for those four reasons always was given a certificate where it, it said this woman or this person is free to remarry. In the cases of uh, the Old Testament, it was always added, if, if it was a certificate given to a woman, it was always added, this person is free to remarry a Jewish man, all right? The, 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 the any matter divorce is not a valid ground. And Jesus is saying, you break that over any matter, and I'm sorry, you don't have the validity to remarry. And to break that, the, the marriage commitment on an any matter clause does not free you from that relationship. And therefore, to go simply into another one is adulterous. But the divorce certificate specified that a woman could marry a Jewish man. And again, you see the echoes of that in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about a woman who's divorced, and it says she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but it should be somebody in the Lord. It suddenly changed from a Jewish man to somebody who loves the Lord. You can see the shaping of Paul's rabbinic thinking, shaped as it is by the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24, Exodus 21. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.